Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Centering Black Film, from Spike Lee to Josephine Baker. Our opening song is Lift Every Voice and Sing. And its history alone illustrates the difficulties of centering anything black in this white capitalist country. The song was dubbed in 1919 by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, as the Negro National Anthem for its power in voicing a cry for liberation and affirmation for African American people. It was first publicly performed as a poem in 1900 by its author James Weldon Johnson as part of a celebration of Abraham Lincoln's birthday at the Edwin M. Stanton School in Jacksonville, Florida with Booker T. Washington in attendance. The school is named after Lincoln's Secretary of War. Johnson's brother, John Rosamond Johnson, put the song to music in 1905. The Johnsons intended the inspirational song to serve as a musical protest against the humiliating conditions of Jim Crow and the bloody wave of racial lynchings that were sweeping the country. We're listening to Hank Crawford and Jimmy McGriff's version off of their 1987 album, Steppin' Up. In 1985, Miller Brewing Company commissioned a new pop version of the song fronted by Al Green and Denise Williams with backing vocals from Patty Austin, Roberta Flack, Deborah McDuffie, and Melba Moore. Miller is now Miller Coors, a joint venture of SAB, South African Breweries, and Molson Coors. The Coors family is one of the funders of all things right-wing in the USA. In 1989, Spike Lee opens Do the Right Thing with a plaintive version of Lift Every Voice played by Branford Marsalis on the tenor saxophone. Our guest today is Terry Francis, an associate professor in the media school at Indiana University in Bloomington and director of the Black Film Center Archive. Francis's forthcoming book, The Cinematic Josephine Baker, excavates how Baker pioneered her defining role in early African-American cinema, seeking forms of authorship within performance. We begin with the institutional role of the Black Film Center archive within a state university where the black student population is roughly 4% of the total. And now, Centering Black Film with Terry Francis on Interchange on WFHB. You ready? Sure. All right. Good. Let's have an interview. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, Terry Francis, thanks for joining me on Interchange. My pleasure. Terry, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you are a professor or assistant associate professor. I'm an associate professor. What do all these things mean? Let's just get that out of the way. Associate, assistant, these are <laughs> tenure track positions? or These are tenure track positions. Mm. I am the curious figure of the untenured associate professor. Mm, okay. What's mm -hmm. that mean? It's really a probationary period. Sure. It feels like you're locked in, but actually it's um, it's a bit of a um, an interim period before mm. you and the university are fully committed to each other as tenured um, mm. as as tenured faculty. You feel good about each other. Yeah, <laughs> okay. so you feel good about each other. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna put on the ring. 
And you're going to say, I do. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there, there is a chance you get divorced at some point. Yeah, there but, is a chance yeah. that you could. But it's a pretty strong union usually. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because given the scarcity of positions mm-hmm. and um, the investment that you're kind of making into each other, right. you want it to work. A good union. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So, well, what do you do there at uh, Indiana University? Sure. So um, I'm in the Cinema and Media Studies unit of the media school, and I direct the Black Film Center Archive. And in these capacities, I do a variety of things. I teach classes, I conduct research, and I do curating and programming and manage the business of the um, of the Center Archive. Hmm. It seems like a lot. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps you busy. <laughs> You're really working for your money. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm putting what I can into the marriage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned the activities really, uh, but let, what exactly does does all that mean? So when you, you talk about a, a film center and directing, you've got to deal with budgets, you've got to deal with what it is the f- film center is actually putting out in the world, uh, as well as how it, um, like how it shows itself in, mm-hmm. in some sense, right? Uh, how is it that a film center makes meaning? And what's, what's your goal there at the Black Film Center and Archive? What's, what's it yeah. showing off to the world? That's a really delicious question. <laughs> I mean, part of it is in our name and some of it is in our history and how the film world and the, and ideas about both the black and black film and the film and black film have changed over time. So the, I think in our name, what's always struck me about it is that it is a center and an archive. So it's a repository of historical artifacts, um, the papers, we have a headstone, we have Oscar Micheaux's headstone, hmm. we have costumes, we have, uh, of course, film prints and videos and so a variety of different formats of, um, of media. We have um, an extensive poster collection. We have the papers of um, particular authors or filmmakers. So it's quite an eclectic um, uh, repository to, to discover film history. And mm. that's a, 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 a large part of our mission is um, the preservation of um, the legacy of um, filmmakers of African descent. Mm. Yeah, it's also a, um, a as a repository. Then it's a, a place where scholars come to do scholarly things. Absolutely, and but it's also in when they come and do scholarly things. Uh, that's the other part of our name, the center that we want to be. On the one hand, um, an historical repository, but also. Um, an accessible, living, breathing center for new research, for new conversations um, among all of our audiences, whether undergraduate students, um, you know, emeritus faculty, um, all, you know, all kind of um, all the different ways that people can get curious about film and that we can serve that curiosity. One of the things that impresses me about it is that it was established before Spike Lee. Hmm. Um, for a lot of um, our mainstream thinking uh, and scholarly thinking too, I think about black film, it really centers on his immersion, uh, emergence in 1986, which he's got to have it. Mm-hmm. But the Black Film 
Center Archive was founded in 1981. So that really strikes me as forward thinking and as responding to a broader set of issues that include celebrity, that include independent film, but that also speak beyond those, um, those issues too. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Centering Black Film, and my guest is Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University in Bloomington. She's author of the forthcoming book, The Cinematic Josephine Baker. So you mentioned um, trying to understand what black means in the Black Film Archive or the Mm. ways in which it has meaning. Obviously, Mm. you can think about um, black filmmakers and then films about black people, black experience as well. Is there a way in which you have – is it necessary to distinguish these things? How does the center do so? If it does, does it – like, does it matter? Yeah, no. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of the writer who did this. It was someone in the Huffington Post recently, uh, maybe Zeba Blay, who wrote about black film as a beautiful clutter. And that beautiful clutter includes exactly what you just said, um, films that are about or seem to be about black people and films that are by black people. Mm-hmm. But then there's also like, so who, who's black exactly? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about Americans? Are we talking about, and is that American, like how Atmospheric is that? Are we talking about the Caribbean? Um, what about Afro Latino uh, creators? Are we talking about the director, or what about? the other below the line crew people and mm-hmm. then what about stars like who actually makes a film mm. when i do my introductions at the iu cinema mm-hmm. i sometimes do more of an atmospheric introduction where i want people to understand that the persons whose work we are seeing is um comes from a long line of explorers. I want people to think about African Americans as um, part of this tradition of creativity and of imagination and ingenuity. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens when we talk about African American art in the kind of liberal white environment is the work is in service to the need for information and the need for, um, well, it's in service. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to gently challenge that by actually bringing the audience into the imagination of the uh, creative force Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, in in whose presence we're uh, really privileged to Mm be. And, and I want that sense of, um, of mystery too, that the, the artist or the film um, can't be completely known. Mm -hmm. And especially if we have a guest, I don't want them to feel obligated to explain everything. Sure. What about its situation here in Indiana in particular? IU may be a different kind of institution in the Mm -hmm. state. I mean, but um, black film in Indiana, I don't know what our population statistics are, but Mm -hmm. they're certainly – heavily uh white mm-hmm. uh and i something like four percent maybe yeah 4.3 yeah yeah so that's pretty mm-hmm. small um do you feel like the center uh has a job to do within that population base the answer to that is um is is a bit complicated mm-hmm. is prismatic mm-hmm. so part of it is how do we partner with institutions in the state of Indiana, who are also interested in um, African American uh, culture, and uh, and the BFCA actually has um, an important history of 
doing that type of work. So in the early years, in the 1980s, the BFCA would collaborate with the Walker Center, um, the Walker Cultural Center in Indianapolis, and with um, Newfields, which at the time was known as Indianapolis Museum of Art. And so those, there are a number of film screenings, and also just like all day symposia, mm-hmm. um, where um, Phyllis Klotman, our founding director, was able to work with partners in the city to bring filmmakers um, and scholars and journalists together. So that's part of it. Finding out, you know, what's kind of what's who else is interested in this. Uh, we recently um, won an Indiana Humanities grant um, to support a program called Refocus Black America. And Refocus Black America was our re-examination of a 1968 um, programming initiative on the IU Bloomington campus that um, just kind of brought writers filmmakers and other kinds of intellectuals to campus um, for talks, for seminars. I believe there was also a slate of classes that went along with this. And it was basically to educate the student body about African-American culture, Mm. right? Um, But it, but you can kind of see in the programming a kind of tension between what African-American students needed from this program and what um, what the administrators, I think, presumed that the student body at large kind of needs. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the artifacts that we read and uh, and really spent a lot of time thinking about was a letter from an apparently African-American student who said, you know, there's nothing here for the militant black student. Mm. Um, these are all just kind of, I don't know, he's just kind of seemed to think they were just kind of bourgeois, kind of too intellectual. You're having poets come like who here is really relevant and speaking to our situation. Mm. Um, but in the university's point of view, it was like, no, this is celebrating the greats. It's, um, it's, um, connecting with the liberal arts education. Mm. You know what I mean? The liberal in liberal arts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the militant, uh, radical arts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And those are different. They, they can are, yeah. kind of occupy a similar space and, or use the same words mm-hmm. and mean quite different things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a key point. It's time for a break. This is the opening to Spike Lee's 1989 movie, Do the Right Thing, which begins with Branford Marsalis on tenor saxophone playing Lift Every Voice and Sing, but soon turns into another kind of black national anthem, Public Enemies Fight the Power. Stay with us for more with Terry Francis when Interchange returns. Cause we don't know the game What 
we need is awareness. We can't get careless. You, you say, say, what, what is, is this? Yeah. Have a love it. Let's get down to business. Mental self-defense of fitness. Go rest the show. You got to go for what you know. To make everybody see. In order to fight the powers that be. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is centering black film, and my guest is Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive. I hope you noticed Public Enemy's disdain for the cultural icon and movie star John Wayne in Fight the Power. Wayne made his views on white supremacy plain in a 1971 interview in Playboy magazine, saying, quote, With a lot of blacks, there's quite a bit of resentment along with their descent, and possibly rightfully so. But we can't all of a sudden get down on our knees and turn everything over to the leadership of the blacks. I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. Unquote. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me. Yes, he's straight out racist. The sucker was simple and plain. So uh, the you mentioned Spike Lee earlier, and Spike Lee is in the news again. Spike, yeah, um, and <laughs> deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Um, usually deservedly so. Uh, so uh, and and Spike Lee, interestingly, uh, is a flashpoint for nearly everybody I know in my life, simply because of "Do the Right Thing." Oh, right. Yeah, every, yeah I'm of that age where you yeah. all have that conversation. Yeah, you did. Did Mookie do the right thing? Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> and no, no one agrees. Mm-hmm. No matter if you agree with somebody, you end up not agreeing with them on why or you know what right. what your rationale is for. It's pretty fascinating, really. Mm-hmm. I actually like didn't want to teach Spike Lee for a long time because he was so popular. I was more into the indie indie people, sure, yeah. um, filmmakers and um, experimental film. But once I started teaching him, it, he weirdly kind of brought me into the mainstream mm-hmm. of uh, what students already know about black film hmm. and uh, and also about contemporary film, uh, especially when I was teaching on the East Coast. You could see Spike walking around, you mm-hmm. know, so people really understood what that class was going to be um, or had seen him at a Knicks game or something sure, right. Um, right. and had an idea of, oh, this could be cool. This could be fun. And, um, you know, and the, and the, the class really delivers on that, you know, um, in our context here, I've added to that quite a bit of, um, material that takes, that gives us the background to be able to see a lot of the references. Mm. So like with something like, um, I think the, opening to do the right thing like the people remember like fight the power Mm -hmm. as the anthem but before that is the a saxophone playing the negro national anthem Mm -hmm. and so i want people i want the students in the class to be able to experience that and that shift Mm -hmm. from one anthem to a new anthem and so um a lot of the early weeks of the class have to do with um learning about the history of African-American humor and learning about the different kinds of traditions in African-American music and performance and how different artists have dealt with the, you know, the absurdity of, um, 
living here and uh, of American identity and the clash between ideals and reality, um, what it means to be, you know, a citizen here. Mm -hmm. So those types of things. So I, I like teaching it and, um, and I like the problems with his films because they, I think they're instructive and illuminating about our society and about the large questions about who we are. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, he's like an uncle kind of, Mm. you know? So when I saw that he was nominated for an Oscar, that really pleased me. And I organized myself to be sure to watch because if he was going to win, especially best picture, I didn't even ask myself whether it deserved it. I don't, whatever. I don't care Mm -hmm. because I think these things are, they mean they mean a lot of different things. So I'm just looking at this is someone with a 30 year career. Men, multiple people who are, were on that stage are connected to his career. Right, right, right. So right, right. yeah, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Well, um, the the idea of um, being a student hmm. is an important one, and to me, part of the difficulty with film generally, and I. And I think I just mean movies, mm-hmm. um, having particular messages, being political, being artistic, you know, trying to speak a certain way. It's a very difficult proposition mm-hmm. in a culture generally consuming mm-hmm. very quickly mm-hmm. for particular reasons, for mostly entertainment value, right? To get a high out of a movie generally, mm-hmm. right? You want to enjoy it, excited, get excited by it, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it takes the space of being a student Mm. for you to be able to say, Mm. listen to how this anthem changes, Mm. right? And then how that should be the sort of first scaffold in your Mm -hmm. viewing experience, right? right? So you will now see this film differently Mm. because you know what that did, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to get that outside of a student experience or if you're an active researcher of those particular films. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, I what's interesting about Spike Lee's films is he thinks that everyone already knows these things. Mm. So when he just kind of, like for like the whole opening of his film School Days, mm. it's this um montage of images from Middle Passage to um uh, the near present, I think, of that film. Mm-hmm. And it's all historical photographs. They are not labeled. The title, the text that you're seeing are the names of the actors in the film. That's no. not who you're seeing on the screen. But you're supposed to know that that's Booker T. Washington. And you're supposed to recognize that this is, um, this is Paul Robeson mm-hmm. or, um, or Ella Fitzgerald. You know, he's quite an educated person right, in that way. Right, right. And I think there are two missions. Like one is the popularization of African American history as part of regular American present. I think mm-hmm. that's like an important, maybe not mission, but just like a tension or a desire that's mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying about the viewing experience being, or the ideal viewer being kind of a student. Mm-hmm. But I also think that I feel like the Spike Lee joint speaks to a school of the everyday. Mm -hmm. Because I think that 
It's also about a counter history Mm -hmm. and a necessary counter history for anyone who wants to know what the country is really about. Mm -hmm. This is work you have to do on your own. Right. Right. And he's always saying, wake up, you know, like the first three or four films all have this line um, being Mm -hmm. shouted directly (laughs) to you. Um, and one of the things to wake up to is what you don't know. Right. 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 Um, right. his films are a starting place, but also I think it speaks to the viewer who has it welcomes, I'd say, the viewer who can rest reading that Zora Neale Hurston quotation at the beginning of She's Gotta Have It and kind of saying, mm, I'm at home. Mm-hmm. I understand this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's the feeling that I had like before um, um, one of Michael Schultz's films, I read um, the Langston Hughes poem, I Too Sing America. Mm-hmm. And I heard as the first line I heard, mm. So, okay, the 4.3 <laughs> is here. Nice. Okay. Nice. You know, so I mean, and yet for, I think for anyone who doesn't know the, well, I think we know Langston Hughes, it's, yeah. but who doesn't right. know the poem, it's still kind of um, a useful 101 introduction moment. Yep. I'm interested in these large questions of, um, well, who is America? Who belongs here? And how is that constructed? And um, I think that's something we we all need to think about in mm-hmm. some sort of way. Definitely. So I want to help make that happen. Sure. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Centering Black Film, and my guest is Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University in Bloomington. She's author of the forthcoming book, The Cinematic Josephine Baker. Well, mentioning waking up or trying to understand the world around us, uh, especially through mainstream movies, can be difficult. Yeah. Um, but it's been a pretty good last mm-hmm. couple of years for uh, black filmmakers, uh, movies about the black experience even. Sure. Uh, so um, what are – do you have some sense – what are your highlights? You know, what are, what are the things that you thought were this, this was really good or, uh, you know, mm. that spoke to this particular moment? Uh, we can name several films. I mean, Get Out. Was a great film. Oh, yes. uh, 2017, mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, Black Panther was a huge success. Sure. Uh, so lots of things have happened this year. Um, we had Spike Lee lose mm-hmm. to <laughs> to I guess the liberal perspective of the Green Book. Um, mm-hmm. So we we had sort of false history mm-hmm. giving us like pretending to be history, um, which is what movies do well in this country at least maybe in all countries who knows um but we got a little propaganda there um and called called to the mat i mean uh, uh, i think the very next day was the smithsonian produced green book yes. guide yes, to yes about the actual yeah, green book yeah, the so, green book was not an italian man dr Shirley. so yeah so there's there is a counter narrative the actual narrative or so mm-hmm. the, so the real history is available to us um so those things even if they do cloud the eyes of many viewers mm-hmm. uh, do lead hopefully some people to investigate those particular situations sure. and, and and topics uh, mm. but it's been it's been a pretty Good year for critique, a good couple of years for critique, um, mm. which is rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, right? Uh, oh, so, yeah. so as those of us who would say, well, capitalism can make use of any critique, you give it. Oh, yeah. So Black mm-hmm. Panther makes a lot of money for a lot of people who aren't black. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know if Get Out did. It was a pretty well-received movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has an, a role as commodity. Yeah. But it is still showing people some things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it seems heartening. Uh, at least on one level, right? Yeah. <laughs> or not, Terry yeah. Francis. Uh, you, uh, you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I would shift the terms mm. a little bit okay. about how to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what I'm excited about with Black Film is that we're not talking about just one filmmaker. Mm. And we... We're not just talking about Spike Lee. We're not just talking about Spike right, Lee. Right. And we're also not just talking about a director or an actor. Mm-hmm. We're talking about an infrastructure. Mm. So there is like a quite a great awareness of the whole kind of ecosystem mm. of um of the movies. So what I like about that is that people are thinking structurally. What's the um are are we not relying on the the kind of mainstream or existing infrastructure, but trying to really connect with a broad range of audiences and to create opportunities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, so like when, you know, when Spike Lee's at the Oscars, Ruth Carter's at the Oscars, Ruth Carter was the costume designer on I think, almost all of his films. Mm. You know, he leaps and Spike Lee leaps into the arms of Samuel Jackson, who appeared in his early films. And he was in kind of media before, but that was a major turning point in his career in film to appear in school days. Um, so that's, that's just a slight example of this like interconnectedness. So like I'm really moved by seeing photographs that have Issa Rae, um, and Shonda Rhimes and, um, Barry Jenkins in the same photograph, um, or pictures of five different actors who all graduated from Yale Drama mm. School. They're aware of each other. They're working together. There isn't that idea of the just one. Sure, gotcha. And, um, and so just thinking the way that artists are not just thinking about me, mm. but are really trying to create something broader. Right. And long lasting for mm-hmm. that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, very much a 40 acres model. Mm-hmm. You see someone, in, an intern in one film, you will see that name again mm-hmm. as a DP right. or some other role. Um, I think the other aspect of this too, I think with, um, the movies and black film is that a lot of it is on TV. Mm-hmm. What Ava DuVernay's doing with Queen Sugar. Um, and her, um, decision to hire women directors and to make the television director, um, an, an important and key part of her, um, of the production, like not just, not just for hire, right. mm-hmm. but she really features these women. Mm-hmm. So like Cheryl Dunier, who was an important independent filmmaker of the, um, of the late eighties, early nineties, early nineties more so, um, is was you know where was Cheryl Dunier for a while? It wasn't really clear. Traveling, teaching, mm-hmm. um, doing a variety of projects, and here she comes popping up on my TV screen as um, the director of um, of uh, an episode of Queen Sugar. And I think that's you know that's again like Ava DuVernay thinking not just about me right. making my film, but also the ecosystem of the movies beyond the film. Yeah, the community. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. On dit qu'on dit l'un des mers, là-bas sur le ciel clair, 
It's time for another break. This is Josephine Baker singing Je Deux Amour from 1930, her most successful song. More with Terry Francis and centering black film when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive, is our guest. In this segment, we turn to Josephine Baker and discover she was more than just an icon of exoticism and sexuality. So much more, including being the only invited woman to speak at the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, let's let's move into what is uh, a project you've just almost finished, I guess, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, book project on Josephine Baker. I knew Josephine Baker's name. Mm-hmm. I knew what she looked like. Uh, you can find pictures of her in Google easily. I had no idea really what she was about, no idea what her life was like, no idea how varied it was, right? Uh, so I'm literally just reading Wikipedia page uh, and finding uh, civil rights actions, finding the March on Washington, finding a speech, you know, find, like she's she's the one woman invited to speak at the March mm-hmm. on Washington. And I'm like, Josephine Baker? Like this, this is a woman that, yeah, this is a woman that has not (laughs) appeared in anything I've read. I've read Robeson, I've read Du Bois, I've read, you know, all these things. She's just not shown up. I don't know that I was looking for her either. Like maybe she is mentioned in those things. I didn't pay attention. I don't know. Um, but she seems absent in roles other than the visual, um, celebrity, the visual, uh, trapped in that particular Mm -hmm. image. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your book project, and then mm-hmm. we can go into yeah. into that some more. Yeah, no, I think celebrity is um, is shiny mm-hmm. and blinding. I mean, I guess I'm still kind of thinking a little bit about the the Oscars uh, in this and imagining like you know Josephine Baker at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking about is what these awards mean and what celebrity means and then what it means to take Josephine Baker from a name that we know kind of as a, as that woman who went to Paris maybe or as a face and to do a work that complicates and expands that picture. One of the reasons that I'm fine with the Oscars 
and with celebrity is I recognize it as a mechanism of power. And so when I think about just how entrenched the and segregated the halls of power are, whether they're Hollywood or academia, you know, I say, yes, it's really important for Spike to get these awards or for Regina uh, King to have her award. In academia, I think it's something like 3% of the um of the professoriate is African American mm. associate professors. That's a very small number. My I will probably be the only black woman of intellectual authority that my students interact with at this university in 4 years. Now that is remarkable. And so I think it's very important that I am there just as a face before I even say anything. But I think just that presence can be transformative, being there so that you can be in a decision-making capacity, that you are hosting conversations, that you are offering frameworks that that just invite a different way of thinking about something that Mm -hmm. can move us a little bit forward or bringing um, together these ideas um, that, you know, that, that in, if I were in a different field, sociology, for example, might be more current, but that we're not thinking about in media or that, you know, that our students wouldn't be exposed to, the, that they wouldn't just recognize the Negro national anthem if right, they heard right. it somewhere. Um, but I like to think that any of my students who were watching the Oscars, you know, when they heard Spike Lee's speech, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes totally sense. That's not weird at all right, that he right. would begin from 1619 mm-hmm. and do this praise song all the way to today. Um, so I think that that's important to think about the country, think about people, um, who are not white as belonging here right. as part of this, um, this country. So that's how I think about like Oscars and academia. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know it's not everything. It's not the only revolution, but this is the one that I can do. Mm-hmm. So with uh, Josephine Baker, her, she has like a story in, uh, in popular culture that you kind of enumerated, I think, really nicely. And then there's also like a scholarly story about her. And the scholarly story about her falls into two camps. Like one of them is that she was a kind of victim of her own success and symptomatic of um, colonialism or of racism. And then the other is that there's something intriguing about the image of her. There's an ambivalence there or a kind of play that we can unpack by looking at the tensions, you know, between her being exploited or, um, you know, or liberated in some mm-hmm. way. So, and so, and people, and the, I think in that camp, people are more thinking about her as liberated, but it seems, it always struck me as more aesthetic. I think overall, like no one's really looking at her movies, her, the specificities of her career, how she's situated relative to other mm-hmm. young women actors, um, and what her career was actually like in the US. Mm-hmm. And that's really where my book comes in. I started out thinking about her in the Paris context, but ultimately I became more fascinated with what she meant to the folks back home. Mm-hmm. 
and how Black people in the U.S. thought about her. Um, and that kind of led me to a totally different appreciation of what she was doing. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Centering Black Film, and my guest is Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University in Bloomington. She's author of the forthcoming book, The Cinematic Josephine Baker. Well, let's place her real quick so we can, oh, sure. yeah, so we know, uh, uh, for those people who don't know anything about Josephine Baker, which I assume is quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's born in 1906 in St. Louis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So she's born here, but not, it doesn't take too long for her to become, uh, to, to move to France, right? Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she moves to France in, uh, 1925 mm-hmm. in the fall. Um, her first show is, uh, The Black Review. And that's the show that really makes her a sensation in Paris and leads to a whole series of, um, of performances there. Mm-hmm. In between 1906 and, um, and that departure for Paris, like that's, that's where I kind of live with her for a mm-hmm. large part of the book. Mm-hmm. Because I became interested in Josephine Baker as someone who saw herself as an artist Mm. and who went on an adventure to Paris, Mm. right? So not not quite someone who um, experienced racism in the U.S. Of course she did. Um, It's racist. (laughs) But but not someone who's merely escaping. Mm which in itself can be quite powerful, mm-hmm. right? The fugitive. But as someone who is deciding to leave so that it's also self-fashioning mm-hmm. while it's mm. this um, kind of escape, it's a thoughtful escape. So 1906 to 1925, she's married apparently at 13 to a Pullman Porter car operator, I believe. At least that's, again, what yeah, the Wikipedia says. Right. At 13. The funny thing about the Wikipedia says is that it says it appears that that marriage wasn't a happy one. <laughs> it didn't last long, <laughs> that's for sure. Okay, she's 13. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I mean, just things like, it's just, I'm actually laughing at the Wikipedia verbiage more than anything else, mm-hmm. right? But then um, marries a guy named Willie Baker mm-hmm. uh, and then keeps that name because she's beginning to become famous. It, again, this is Wikipedia's uh, way of framing it. So, um, clearly in East St. Louis, if you've been to St. Louis, you know that I don't know when East St. Louis was a thing or became a thing or what, you know, I, mm-hmm. I know only a little bit about St. Louis, uh, 19, I think 1919, there's fairly serious riots right. in St. Louis. So. In, the, in East St. Louis, so the 1917 East oh, St. Right, Louis right. riots. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, so but she writes about them as though they happened in St. Louis mm. and as though they happened to her. Oh. And actually her memoir, her first one, um, begins with that experience wow. yeah so you um so if we see the basic josephine baker even if we don't investigate mm-hmm. her literal life like right. into because she doesn't really exist for us in that way right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? that's fair mm-hmm. yeah so she exists generally for many of us as a an icon of sorts mm. right and so your work you wants to make use of that somehow, right? Or to see her as making use of it also mm-hmm. and to see how she can use it yeah, and speak with it a certain mm-hmm. way. 
One of her first big breaks is with a traveling show. Uh, she leaves with the show. She's, uh, she's kind of, um, not a stage hand, but kind of working backstage, kind of helping out the other performers. But she gets herself on stage and uh, demonstrates her gifts as a comedian. Mm. And that leads to her touring with the group, uh, sometimes playing that role, mostly not playing it. And then she goes on to do other shows. And she um, becomes uh, part of the chorus line for Shuffle Along, which was an incredibly important um, Broadway show th- um, where Paul Robeson performed and, and, and entered into entertainment life, hmm. Freddie Washington, um, and many others. It was uh, this kind of groundbreaking musical comedy that had a romance story in it also um, that featured, um, you know, black characters who were not in blackface and a cast and, um, you know, and a, a crew of writers, authors who saw themselves as doing something quite original and cutting edge and, um, and modern. Um, Langston Hughes called it the show that kicked off the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. You know, he really, um, was struck by the energy of it. And, um, and I think the authenticity of it, that it was, um, you know, that it just that it wasn't blackface mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, used, um, you know, African American kind of settings and, and, um, jokes and performances and so forth. So that's 1921. Um, Baker tours with this group and then, um, 22, 23, and 24, she, she tours with other groups mm. and, um, and is successful. People love what she's doing. She's a comedian, a comedic dancer. Mm. Um, so she has um, a level of success mm. on Black Vaudeville. It's time for our final break. This is Boney M with Everybody Wants to Dance Like Josephine Baker from 1989. When we come back, who was Josephine Baker in the U.S. before she moved to France and became a sexualized other? Stay with us. Josephine Baker, born in St. Louis. 1906, died in Paris, 1974, ambition, the world. Way back in the 30s, long before you were born, there was a girl called Josephine, just a skinny little black girl. Never heard of self-control To fill the floor and bear to a soul 
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. For our final segment of Centering Black Film, from Spike Lee to Josephine Baker, Terry Francis puts all her cards on the table in asserting that Josephine Baker was an author of her performances, and one more critical of audience perception than might be thought. Again, simply because Josephine Baker to me is almost a stripper in my mind mm, mm-hmm. because that's the image that and it's literally just an image right so yeah. so but you you're pointing primarily to a, a, an intelligence that's operating within and, and to me especially comedic work comedic work requires that kind of intelligence mm-hmm. I don't talk about Josephine Baker as a um, as doing a striptease mm-hmm. um, what I think is going on with her is that in the US context and for the African American journalists that are observing her they see her as a comedian mm. um, they don't see they're, they're not talking about her in a sexualized way mm. and they're not talking about her in a minstrel so they're actually not talking about her in terms of And this is prior to moving to France. This is prior to moving to France. And I think it's really in France that she becomes this burlesque figure that the very, I think it looks like the same moves that she was doing in Mm. the U.S. become sexualized and eroticized and and exoticized Mm. in France because they're unfamiliar and she is half naked and that's what what they do over there. (laughs) Uh, And so, but in the U.S. It was um, I. I didn't see that you know evidence of of that um, in referring to her. It was much more. She's the lightning of jazz. Um, you know, she's. We're looking forward to seeing what she's going to do tonight. Her performance was that there would be a chorus line um, of people all doing the same thing. Um, you know, just like kicking their legs in a super machine like way, and then she would be at the end of the chorus line, like you know pretending not to know the moves she would step out of the line she would do this like rubber leg dance she would cross her eyes you know what i mean she was just she would just kind of goof off Mm -hmm. and she became known as the end girl um Or the sometimes the comedy end girl. Mm -hmm. And these are the kind of moves that she would do as a solo act that then become read, you know, quite differently Mm -hmm. um, in in Paris and in a different costume too, the feathers and beads and whatnot. It's fascinating to imagine Josephine Baker prior to that received image, you know, Mm -hmm. to to the sexualized image in Mm -hmm. particular. But the sexualized image is something that is made use of today as well. Like you, you do work showing how current performers make use of Baker. Sure. Beyonce mm-hmm. performed as Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting ready to see a show in, um, in May. That's called Meditations on Josephine Baker. I write about Lynn Whitfield, who played Baker in the HBO movie, The Josephine Baker Story. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how much she enjoyed. Well, at first she was, um, uh, she was hesitant to play Baker. She thought that my parents are going to be so angry that I'm doing this. I'm going to be naked this whole movie. But then she really embraced it and, um, and said that she found a kind of liberation mm-hmm. in it. And, um, and a kind of innocent sensuality to it, which I think is, uh, is important. So, I mean, yeah, so people find inspiration mm-hmm. in her now. Is there a, a problematic space, though, 
episode where we, again, I think it was interesting because you talk about, with Spike Lee, we talked about the idea that the creator mm-hmm. frames his work or her work with her own intelligence and with her own expectations and with her own ideas of audience, uh, with her own ideas of what she's doing. Mm. Um, but the reception is not in her control, right? So I think part of me struggles with the idea of being able to manage that sexualized otherness, which you're stuck with in this country, at least, and it appears to be in France as well, um, of being a sexualized creature, right, more than anything mm-hmm. else, and how you struggle to control that or make use of it somehow to push back against it or push sideways against it for yourself, you know, if not in the culture at large, but that you can't make much inroads in. <laughs> it's a puzzle. <laughs> it's, it's a big puzzle. It's a puzzle. It's a big puzzle. I mean, the, the um, you know, is she really an agent? Is she really an author? And what evidence is there of her authorship? This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Centering Black Film, and my guest is Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University in Bloomington. She's author of the forthcoming book, The Cinematic Josephine Baker. She's on screen, but she doesn't have a writing credit for her films. She starred in the films. Uh, she's the reason they got made. Right. And certainly the reason that they're remembered. Right, right. So that is a kind of signature. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same as me being able to locate a script that says by Josephine Baker. There are texts, though, that she wrote other texts mm. that I corral into this puzzle or fit into the puzzle to, to kind of make a case for for her intelligence driving mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. But it's a case that does have to be made. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not evident. Um, I mean, even thinking about what her relevance could possibly be to the United States, because after she leaves, these films are French films. Mm-hmm. They, um, you know, one of them circulates back in the U.S. in the uh, late 20s, and uh, through 1930. But the others come much later. Mm. You know, she starred in four films, um, Siren of the Tropics, uh, 1927, Zuzu, 1934, and Princess Tam Tam, 1935. And then um, apparently in 1940, she shot and performed in a film called The French Way. <laughs> um, and... Uh, but it was released, you know, after 1945, I think, after the war. Um, so the, together with, you know, newsreels and, um, you know, two short films, one which includes footage of the banana dance, um, that's really her cinematic output. Mm. And I'm putting my entire book on that. Mm. I'm saying, that's it. This person... I know she didn't make these films here, but this is a black film pioneer. Mm-hmm. Um, I know she's speaking French. She's way out there, but this belongs in the U.S. And um, I know that four films, you've never seen them. You've never heard of them. But these are the basis of her film pioneeringness. We're missing something so important in not being able to think about black film transatlantically mm. and not being able to make sense of the reality that this woman starred in these films. She is the reason they were made. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other black women stars, um, and, and black women stars who were, who appeared in films based on their 
their live performance career. Like there were singers, you mm-hmm. know, like Lena Horne, for example, or Elizabeth Welsh, who's in Britain. So there's another kind of, you know, um, expatriate member of her, of a kind of cohort. Um, but there's something unique, I think, with the international reach of her fame and the ambition of these films, the expectation that they would also, um, that they would also circulate internationally, mm-hmm. um, not just to advance her fame, but to be a counter to Hollywood and, um, and then eventually enter into Hollywood, um, as a, a kind of, you know, important black figure. That's something that isn't really happening in U.S. black film at that time. So what do we get when we bring her back in? Um, I think we get, we have to then really think about these questions of authorship. Um, There are other filmmakers that make it super tidy. So you kind of think about race films, the Oscar Michaud uh, films of the, you know, from the 20s through the 40s, or Spencer Williams, uh, Eloise uh, uh, Gist, and so, or Zora Neale Hurston, you know, doing her fieldwork footage. And those, I think our focus there really keeps us neatly focused on the authorship we can prove. Mm -hmm. These are directors, their name is on it, um, and we can maybe more easily integrate their work into the existing canons of film. Um, But I but we still need to ask I think, important questions about the nature of that authorship and even the nature of the um, the black diegetic world that's being portrayed there. Josephine Baker is often the only black person in her films. <laughs> and that is probably more like the experience of the integrated world that people were working so hard for in the US. How to manage that? What is that like exactly? Um, and and, uh, and she, in her own way, I think, really engages with the melancholia of that, um, the losses of that experience, even while, you know, it is success. Um, it's a very complicated success. That's our show. We'll close with one more song by Josephine Baker. This is Blue Skies, an Irving Berlin song Baker recorded in 1927. I'm blue, just as blue as Our thanks to Terry Francis, director of the Black Film Center Archive and author of the forthcoming book, The Cinematic, Josephine Baker. And a special thank you to Terry for choosing today's music selections. And thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on Community Radio, WFHB. Nothing but blue skies do I see. Nothing but bluebirds all the day long. Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. I noticed that the days are hardly gone when you're in love. Oh, how they gone. Bluebirds, all of them gone. Nothing but blue skies all the day long.